the demand for corporate spies is uh, intense. Um, I still have people that are in the, in the business spying, uh, and they tell me that they have more work than they can handle. Uh, one of the most shocking things about writing my book is so I write this book, I out myself as a corporate spy, I put a target on my back. I cannot tell you how many emails I've received from major corporations begging me to spy for them. And I email them back and I say, you do know that because I wrote the book, I can't spy anymore. It's, you know, right. they don't yeah. care. <laughs> they don't care. They just want the information. So there is a lot of demand for corporate spies. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Slow Smoke Business Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Morgan. And today we've got uh, several things that we're going to be cooking. And we're talking to my new friend, Robert Kerbeck. Robert is uh, probably the, I've never introduced somebody with a more interesting title. He is a noted, probably the foremost authority on corporate espionage. Corporate, he's a corporate spy. Uh, he's also an author, excuse me, an author. And uh, he has he has an IMDb page, which is something I've always thought was really cool. And people have that. Um, and we're really excited to have him on the show. Welcome, Robert. Oh, thank you, Jared. This is a pleasure. This is the coolest podcast that I've ever, ever been on or come across. Now, you're a spy, so I don't believe a word you're saying right out of the gate. He's, <laughs> he's, he's pulling a By the way, the name of his book is Ruse, R-U-S-E. Uh, and so go check that out on Amazon. I, I can't wait to check that out too. Um, it is so good to have you here and I'll tell you what we're cooking first, but so we can get that on the grill and then we'll get to know each other a little bit better. So today I'm doing a, um, it's not a flank steak. It's a sirloin. People call it different types of cuts, you know, different types of things. So this is a sirloin cap that I'm going to kind of treat like a brisket. And then I'm going to do something I've never done for this type of, of meat, I'm actually going to glaze it with some barbecue sauce and let it kind of caramelize on it because I'm just in the mood to do it. <laughs> I don't know if you're supposed to do that. I know here come the barbecue haters that are going to tell me I'm wrong, but hey, I'm eating it and you're not. So, um, And then we're doing some bacon-wrapped cheese-stuffed jalapenos, which are one of my favorite things uh, to do because they're super easy. You pop them on the grill and there's green in there so we can pretend like it's it's a vegetable, right? I guess it technically is a vegetable. Um, so I'm going to season it. Can you see that, Robert? I can see it. I'm, I'm envious. Yeah, this is... Uh, well, don't get too envious. We'll have to see how it turns out first. So I'm just dusting these with some... Hashtag not a sponsor. Texas sugar. This is my eighth episode in a row of blowing kisses at Meat Church. Come on and be a sponsor. Come on, baby. Join the family. Um... Want to get them good and coated because you want that. Ooh, got a little sizzle there. So, Robert, you, do you ever do any cooking at all? Are you, are you an indoor cook, an outdoor cook? Or are you just are you just eating what other people cook? Hashtag no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife, my wife is a gourmet cook, and so um, oh. uh, basically, there's there's no point to me trying to cook or make anything because. She's going to make it better, faster, healthier, whatever. Um, and so I'm, I've basically been banished to uh, booze, booze and wine. Well, there's worse things to get banished to. Uh, what, yeah, so you're, what's exactly. your favorite thing your wife cooks? You know, she is a connoisseur with fish. Um, Ooh. And, 
you know, my, my hometown is Philadelphia. Growing up in Philadelphia, we did not have the best fish. You know, it was fried fish and not very good fried fish. And so I came out here to California, met my wife, fell in love, and she started making all of this amazing, you know, California seafood, fresh fish, you know, scallops, shrimp, lobster. Um, and it, it was just, uh, you know, my life has never been the same. People sleep on California seafood, man. You talk about, especially down there where you are, you talk about fresh and just delicious and, I mean, just the best, right? You're in, you're in like the Malibu area, right? Yeah, and sometimes I catch my own fish. So a couple years ago, I was, um, I got a chance, I had some meetings, got a good friend that lives out in that area, and there's a place, and I can't remember, it was like a, it's like a, I can't remember the name of it, it's like on the coast in Malibu, it's like where they film Point Break or something like that, and it's like this little seafood market, and I went in there and had some like awesome crab and stuff, and I want to say it got beat up in the fire or something, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Sure, sure. I think what you're talking about is Malibu Seafood. Okay. It's on the Pacific Coast Highway, but it's on the land side of the highway. Um, that's right, And it's, yes. a, it's, a, it's a seafood market, but it's also a restaurant. Okay, yes, that's right. Because I remember, I remember going in and getting my picture taken with this giant, like, Dungeness crab <laughs> holding up. It's, like, bigger than my head. Yeah, and, and Malibu Seafood survived the fire um, uh, just barely. Um, and as you, you probably know, I wrote the only book on our fire called Malibu Burning, um, which documented um, that, you know, uh, you know, the worst wildfire in Los Angeles history, which happened just a couple of years ago and uh, burned down a good portion of this town. And your sound guy earlier was hearing some hammering in the background. He said, Robert, can you do anything about that hammering? And I said, my neighborhood of 300 homes, we lost over 200 of the homes and so think about living next door to a neighbor who's rebuilding their house. My whole town is being rebuilt, so not much I can do about the hammering. <laughs> so what year was that, that that fire took place? The fire was 2018. And, and here we are, we're coming up on the five-year anniversary, and I have neighbors who've not even begun uh, to rebuild their homes yet. What a sequence of events, too, because then, you know, a couple of years later, you got a pandemic that gives you labor supply shortages and material supplies that's that's um that's crazy so i'm i was so focused on your your history in corporate espionage and ruse i i think i actually missed that you wrote the book mm. on the malibu fire i was i wasn't aware of that yeah so i started writing ruse um and then of course we had this fire and and my wife and child we fought the fire and saved our house um la times wow. asked me to write an essay about it which i did and then a publisher read that and asked if I'd write a book on the Malibu fire. And because that was so time sensitive, I put Ruse on the back burner, wrote Malibu Burning, you know, promoted Malibu Burning for about a year and then went back and finished Ruse. And then obviously Ruse just kind of came out. Um, and so now um, I'm talking mainly about Ruse. But, you know, Malibu Burning is obviously near and dear to me because it's my home. You know, it's my town, not my hometown because sure. I'm from Philadelphia, but I've lived here for a long time now. And, um, you know, my child grew up here, went to the schools here and and, you know, most people have popped into Malibu at some point in time. And a lot of times they have a perception of Malibu being a town of just rich and famous people. And I'm here to tell you that that's not the case, especially for the people that live on the land side of the Pacific Coast Highway, live up in the hills and the canyons. And those are the people that lost their homes in the fire. Whether you're a person that's got a lot of resources or a person that doesn't, like, you know, you, you lose your home and that's going to rock you to your core. Yeah. And um, it's sad. You know, growing up 
in and around Florida, you know, we, we deal with those things once every year or two when we have hurricanes come in. And it's, it's weird to see how um, those things will change a community. So you, you'll go back and try to rebuild everything just like it was. And it just becomes that situation, that fire or that hurricane or whatever it is, it permanently alters the DNA of an organization, excuse me, of a, of a community. Um, sometimes, sometimes, you know, you don't want to say for the better, like it was a good thing that that happened, but you do see sometimes communities come out stronger or, you know, they finally get a project off the ground that had been talked about for a long time. And other times you see communities that never make it all the way back. That's well said about it changing the DNA because that's so true. Here we are almost five years after the fire. And anytime I run into a neighbor on the street, at the community pool, surfing, whatever, the fire is the first thing that comes up. You know, how are people doing? How are people faring? How are people rebuilding? How are people not rebuilding? Because, you know, Malibu is a small town. It's only 10,000 people. And so when you lose 2,000 homes in a small town, oh the city infrastructure is overwhelmed, right? And so trying to get building permits and all of that stuff in a tiny little town that they're just not, you know, they're, they're normally dealing with five business permits, not 2000, you know? Um, So it's really kind of uh, made it very difficult for people to get back to where they were. That's wild. Well, I, I I don't want to bury the lead here because, you know, when you introduce yourself to somebody and you say, I am a corporate spy, you probably (laughs) get some, some interesting looks. And so, Tell me exactly what that means. What does it mean when you say you're a corporate spy? You know, for many years, um, um, I was hired um, by the largest corporations in the world um, to find out anything and everything I could about their top rivals. Um, And, you know, we all know the Russians spy on the Chinese and the Chinese spy on us. But what most people are shocked to find out is that major corporations all over the world are spending, forget about millions of dollars, forget about tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars to spy on each other every day. Wow. <laughs> and that was my job. You know, the average person hears this, they're probably thinking, is this legal or is this illegal? And so what, you, do you get that question a lot? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Jared, you broke up. What was that? I'm oh, sorry. I'll say it again. <laughs> no. Oh, oh, aha. Aha. It took me. It's <laughs> He's an actor, folks. So that's so uh, we'll just skip that altogether. I'm sure I'm sure there's I'm sure this it's like anything in life. You've got there's rules and you can't give a blanket answer to that for sure. It depends on the tactics and and things like that. But when when a if you're brought in as a corporate spy, um, what exactly is the most common thing that an organization is trying to find out about their rival? Yeah, great question. And and in terms of the legal question, I mean, look, yes, the, you know, at one point, um, my buddy who got me this job, he and I sat down with an attorney, and this is many years ago now, and the attorney said, he said, what you're doing is in the gray, the very dark gray. Um, and I waited to publish ruse until the statute of limitations expired on any potential crimes that I may or may not have committed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it it, it almost always starts. Uh, companies want to know the very first thing um, is they want to understand their competitors' organization. So they want to understand who works at a firm, what the organizational chart looks like, and then they want to know data on who the rock stars are at their rivals, right? So for example, if there's a sales organization, we're going to get the 
revenue numbers on the salespeople. So we're gonna know who's the number one salesperson, who's number two, who's number three. If it's a trading team, we're gonna get the rankings on the traders. If it's banking, we're gonna get the size of the bankers' books of business. If there's developers, we're gonna find out who's considered, who are the top developers on the team. Like whatever the industry is, we're gonna give them the organizational chart with the rankings on all employees. And something you, you, know, you, you probably know, but maybe some of your listeners may not, is that all corporations have some ranking metrics on their employees and we would learn what that was. Because as you can imagine, if now I've identified your rock stars and I can poach them, I can steal them, you know, I can steal one person from this team, one person from that team, it can make a huge difference in terms of denting that company's revenue and then increasing your revenue because now you just stole the, the, the best and the brightest from your top rival. Yeah, I heard you say in another video online that you, you oftentimes would look for the highest performer whose, uh, whose compensation was not in line with their performance, right? They were, yep. they were grossly underpaid, and that would make them a high likelihood of a successful poaching target. Yep, exactly. We, we would be looking for kind of, you know, the bang for your buck target. So a lot of times it would be a younger individual that was killing it, that was up and coming, basically, you know, future, future all-star. But they weren't really known in the in the market yet, in the marketplace, because they'd been doing the job for a year, a year and a half, two years, whatever. But they were, you know, the, the you know, the the next big deal. And by identifying them when they were still underpaid, they were just prime for stealing. And again, you can imagine if you can steal top talent, especially underpaid top talent, you don't have to pay that much more to get it. And now you've got yourself, you know, a future star. Right. And then we would take the organization, we would take the organizational chart, and then we would start to build off of that. And then we would start to find out what the company's plans were, what their new products were, how they were going to price those products, who their clients were, what future deals they were working on, you know, what the bids were, you know, anything and everything that would give you, you know, it's basically like I'm a big football guy. You're in Alabama. You might be a big football guy, too. Um, oh, yeah. The playbook. Like we would get the playbook on your competitors, your top rivals, and we would know everything about them. Think about, you know, and I always think about in football, if you could get the playbook, you know, the two or three days before the the big game and you knew every formation your opponent was going to run, how valuable is that? Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, I think about it from, you know, the business that we had and, and we would go to you know, all of our competitors and I would go to conferences and it was always such a big deal when one of one of the organizations in our space would stand up and give a public presentation on something because it was the one time you got a window into what it is that they're talking about. And mm -hmm. I can hear, you know, for for what you're saying, to be able to get that when they're not trying to share that publicly um, really does give a business an, an advantage. Did you find that there were certain industries that... Um, that were more interested in this type of a, an effort than others, or was it, was it a pretty universal practice? That's a great question. I mean, the more money involved, the more spying was done. So Wall Street, huge on hiring spies. Tech, huge on hiring spies. Pharmaceutical industry, big on hiring spies, right? Um, industrial, automotive industry, big on hiring spies, right? Anywhere where there was a lot of money involved, 
corporations. And, you know, you think about it, you know, again, going back to sports, we know how competitive sports are, how competitive it is to win an NBA championship, right? Well, corporate America is just as competitive. You know, publicly traded companies, these C-level executives, you know, their bonuses are tied to the stock price. Uh, If the stock goes down too far or the revenue, they don't hit the numbers, they get fired. So there is a lot of pressure on these individuals to succeed. And so that pressure um, makes them, you know, they, they, they're, you know, they're going head to head against their rivals and they got to win. And so they need to get, or they're trying to get any edge they can. You don't have to give away your entire book, but, you know, share a story with us of, uh, something that you saw that you couldn't believe when you were, when you were putting a ruse on for a company, some, some situation where you're like, boy, I didn't think I was going to learn that. Well, I mean, look, that happened all the time because we would, you know, we're talking to people, right? And and we are presenting ourselves as um, employees of the company, internal people. Sometimes I would be imitating executives. You know, as a trained actor, I could imitate people's voices. I could do accents, you know, um, one of my favorites is this is Gerhard calling from the office in Frankfurt, Germany. <laughs> we have the European Union regulators here and we need some information from the States. And so the person would go, oh, hey, Gerhard. Oh, you, you, you run uh, legal for us in Europe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never spoke to you, but I've seen your name on a lot. Hey, Greg, what's going on, buddy? What do you need? Right. So, you know, in the corporate world, what are people taught? You know, you know this, you know, be a good teammate, right? Yeah. You know, you know, good, have a good corporate culture. And so people, if they believe that you are somebody, and of course, nobody's thinking that someone's calling up and imitating the guy Gerhardt's German accent, right? Um, yeah. So people would tell you anything and everything, and they would tell you secrets. They would tell you secrets about people's personal lives. They'd go, oh, well, you know what happened to the COO, right? He hasn't been in for a week. You know, he's in rehab. You know, can you believe it? Oh, my, you know. So you would learn all of this incredible private information because people were talking to you like you were you were in on the secret when, of course, you had no idea and you were you know, you were gathering all of this information basically to sell that, that to that company's top rival. That's crazy. So I'm going to check our, uh, our meet here. Uh, it's, when you were approached by a company to do this, you know, was it something that you did as a, as a team? Get a load of that sizzle, by the way, before you answer that question. Did you hear that? That was, that's good stuff. That's that high, that's high quality. Uh, uh-huh. They call that quality content on the internet. <laughs> did you, was this something that you did with a team? And is it something that um, if they were going to have you do something, was it a, was it a one shot kind of, I need you to get in and do this or were they like year long engagements? Every assignment was bespoke. So it was custom. Some assignments would take a day or two. Some assignments we'd work on for a couple of months and I didn't work as a team, but um, my buddy that got me into the business, um, he and I were very competitive. And so there would be times where I would get basically, you know, we would call it busted, where I I would be shut down. I couldn't I couldn't figure out how to break a certain firm. And then I'd go to him uh, and he would because his techniques were completely different from mine. And so sometimes he would take it over for me. And then if he was able to break through and pull it off, which of course he usually was, then he would have bragging rights. Um, (laughs) And the same thing happened with him. You know, sometimes he would get stuck and then he'd call me and I'd get it. 
And then I would be, you know, basically teasing him for the next month that, uh, you know, I saved his, I saved his bacon. And, you know, get, you know, see, since we're on the grill here, we're going to use some, uh, some, some grill puns. Save the bacon. So how do people find you? I mean, you can't, it's not like you can take out a Google ad. Or maybe you can, but like, I wouldn't think, I wouldn't think you could just be like, hello, my name is so-and-so, you know, how did you, was it just, is there like an underworld of corporate spies that people got to tap into? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all word oh, of mouth. Uh, that was, that was a joke. I didn't think you're going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, people would find me um, because somebody else had used me and somebody would go, oh my God, we found this guy. He can find out anything. Uh call this guy. And so I started hearing from more and more companies um, that wanted to hire me. I mean, eventually, you know, kind of towards the end of my spying career, I was making $2 million a year and I was turning people away that were begging me and throwing money at me to spy for them. I mean, that's great money for sure. So how long did you do this? And what made you decide to finally get out of it? You know, I, I've never, I think I s- never sat down and counted the exact number of kind of days slash years, but it was, you know, I think uh, 15 years or so I was spying. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And it was when uh, one day my, my kid, my eight-year-old heard me on the phone and said, you know, dad, are, are you a hacker? You know, and uh, <laughs> and I started <laughs> oh, to try no. to, Yeah. I know. And I started to try to justify what I was doing. And, and, um, and my kid said, um, but it's dishonest. Mm. Um, and I said, you're right, it is. And that was the moment when I realized I have to stop this. Um, and so then I began to, to you know, get myself out of the ruse, um, you know, hence the title of my book, and um, had the proverbial midlife crisis and um, kind of went back to where I had started as a young guy. I was an English major in college and started writing some things and started going to writers, writers conferences to kind of work on my writing. And at one of them, I read an early piece from Ruse and people were just blown away because they just didn't know this world existed. They did not know this corporate spying world and the shenanigans and the the craziness of it. And they said, you've got to write a book about that. And that was the moment where the light bulb went off that, wow, you know, this is a story that people are going to want to hear about. I bet you watched that movie, Catch Me If You Can, and probably like, this guy's a hack, right? You probably probably look at that guy (laughs) and think like, nah, man. No, well, Frank Abagnale, who wrote Catch Me If You Can, um, he he gave me the uh, blurb, uh, the testimonial that's on the cover of my book, um, um, and I I did not know. Oh, uh, oh. I, you know we, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We I, and I did not know. We call him Mr. A. I did not know Mr. A, but the publisher Penguin Random House. You know what what your publisher tries to do when your book is getting ready to come out is they reach out to people that have written books similar to yours that are famous, you know, big writers that have written famous books. Obviously his book got made into an amazing movie. So they reached out to him and I said, there's no way that Frank Abagnale is going to read my book, let alone give me a testimonial. But he did. He read the book and he flipped out over it and he gave this amazing testimonial. He's now recommending me for speaking gigs. Um, he's wow. really, really been a, a, such a kind man, and I'm really grateful. Um, and because he gave me the blurb that's on the cover, of course, now Hollywood was like, wait a second, if the Catch Me If You Can guy likes this Ruse book, maybe we should option it. And so now Ruse is in development for a TV series. 
Hot dang, that is breaking news here on the Slow Smoke Business Show. I can't wait to hear how that <laughs> goes. And I bet that was what a moment, right? I mean, so you've 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 done this book and and you've 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 told your story and you know, there's got to be a moment when you you cuz it doesn't take it's not a quick thing to write a book, right? And so no. you spend the time, you get it edited, you go through the process with the publisher, and I'm sure there's a moment where you're wondering whether anybody's actually going to hear the story or care about it. So what did it feel like when you finally, you see like probably the goat of, you know, uh, deception artists, right? Frank Abagnale, uh, he is going to, he's going to recommend your book. How does it feel to see that sort of thing start to take off? I, I mean, I was blown away. I really was. I mean, I, it was beyond my wildest expectation and, and, and not just Frank Abagnale, a, a number of other writers, you know, this great writer wrote th this book, uh, Bradley Hope wrote this book, Billion Dollar Whale, which is being made into a movie, which is another great kind of spy deception story. Uh, he gave the, the book a blurb, Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent that was outed uh, by the Bush administration, uh, wrote a book called Fair Game. They made a movie out of it with Naomi Watts and Sean Penn. She gave me a blurb. Wow. Um, so it was really, um, I, I couldn't believe it. And I was just so lucky and I'm grateful. And 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 it makes a big difference when when people like that kind of recommend your book. It, it put people go, oh, I loved Catch me if you can. Okay, I'll read Ruse. I loved Billion Dollar Whale. Okay, I'll read Ruse. You know, it really helps. Yeah. So, where's the where's the TV show in development? How how far along are you guys in that process? Well, I I, I can't give you a name, but I met with a super famous young actor to play the young me. Uh, and the only clue I'll give you, I won't answer yay or nay to names. Okay. But I will tell you All that right. this this young man. This young man who's going to play me or might play me, uh, we you know we don't want to count our chickens before they hatch, uh, has 34 million followers on Instagram. Oh my goodness! Okay, so so that that's a pretty famous guy. <laughs> and what is it for sure? And it, that's got to be a crazy thing to pick somebody to play you. And did you have any say in that process? Or you did they go? Well, what do you think, Robert? Or did or they're just walking in and going? We got this guy. It's going to be this guy. Yeah. Well, you know, they, the the Hollywood people. Um, you know, I, I don't. I don't even like that term, calling them Hollywood people. They're so nice. They're so down to earth. They want my opinion on everything. You know, they're. It's been really cool. And and this actor and I have actually a little bit of a physical similarity, which is pretty pretty you know unusual because you know the actor who's going to play me in the movie doesn't have to look like me, but if sure. they do look like you, that's even better. Right. Yeah. Um, so there is a little similarity, which is, again, it just makes it even nicer. I'm, I'm so fascinated by this, this whole, first of all, this, your career, but then the, it's actually the story's turning into this whole thing. And that's really, really great. So what do you, um, you know, after you, you know, stopped, uh, you know, the, with that career and there's a good, it's been a good, like you said, 10 years, right? Um, where did you see this going after writing this book? Did you, did you think that you were going to go the, oh, somebody's going to turn it into uh, an art piece like that? Or did you think that, you know, okay, I'm going to get into speaking gigs or I'm going to train other people how to do this. Um, where did you, where, where is the, what's the career arc for somebody that's, that's had your kind of past experiences? You mean in terms of a corporate spy? 
Yeah, well, I mean, so when you started writing the book, I'm I'm just trying to figure out where did you think this was going to go? Did you were you writing it in hopes that, you know, this was going to become a Hollywood thing or were you hoping to sort of train other people and kind of shed a light on a business so that people understood it more or, you know, were you just trying to tell your story? Well, you know, when I started writing, uh, you know, after I had, you know, I had to get out of corporate spying. I, I, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And so I just started writing a lot of short stories. I grew up as a young guy. I used to love to read short stories. They usually were about sports. Um, so I started writing short stories. They started getting published. And that all of a sudden made me go, well, wait a second. You know, if I could get a 20 page short story published in a magazine um, and get paid for it, um, maybe I could, you know, write, you know, 20 or 30 kind of short stories, but put them together as a book um, in terms of, you know, a novel or a, or a nonfiction book. And so that's what I started doing. And, um, you know, I, it surprised me that that these books have gotten out there and they've done well. Um, I didn't write them for any reason other than I wanted to tell a story. You know, Malibu Burning, I wanted to tell the story of these this community in Malibu that people outside of Malibu don't realize that it's this small kind of salt of the earth, you know, pull your up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, kind of wild west frontier town. People have no idea that there's this kind of old Malibu, like the wild west, the old west that still exists. You know, my neighborhood, there are horses everywhere. You know, people don't know that. And and then the same thing with Ruse. I wanted to tell my story um, and then also shine a light on the the corporate espionage and the corporate spying, how prevalent it is. You know, now I speak to corporations um, and try to advise them um, about how not to fall victim, how to better train and educate employees so that they're not giving up sensitive secrets, so they're not giving out their passwords that then uh, enable breaches or ransomware attacks. Um, because I'm here to tell you, if I can hack your people, I can hack your systems. Um, so for sure, a lot of corporations spend a lot of time and money, a lot of time and money on the software, the hardware, the network, the encryption, the firewall, all of that stuff. Great. And they spend no money and no time training and educating employees about how not to fall victim to the type of social engineering and rusing that I was doing. I love calling it social engineering. Uh, and I'm checking the, uh, the meat here. Let's see how we're doing. I love calling it social engineering because that's what you did you didn't just you know, when you hear the word spying people think that you're you're just watching but but what you did was making them an active participant in um in what was going on by you know doing the german accent or whatever and kind of getting them to just start you know playing along but you can't just you're not just watching it's kind of like that's why that's why i love the word ruse right it's, it was that how what do you what do you tell companies to be watching out for to see if, if they think somebody could be spying on them or there's a ruse getting played on their company? Well, I'm here to tell you, somebody asked me the other day, they said, Robert, do most companies hire spies? And I said, no, most companies don't hire spies. All companies hire spies. Oh. Um, so all companies are being spied on. Um, and if you're not taking steps proactively, um, you're going to get hit with something, whether it's a breach whether it's, um, you know, you're going to lose your top employee, whether you're going to be a victim of a ransomware attack, any one of those things, it's a type of corporate spying. It's a type of corporate espionage. And um, look, I'm here to tell you nine out of 10 employees, when you do surveys, nine out of 10 people think that they would never 
give up information that they sh- that they shouldn't or click on an email that they shouldn't or respond to a text that they shouldn't. And the truth is, is that nine out of 10 people will do exactly that. Wow. <laughs> so everybody thinks that they won't do it and everybody actually does make these kind of mistakes. And so if corporations really aren't emphasizing that, um, they're eventually going to have a major problem. At the company that I started, um, which is now called Measure Learning, we have this whole uh, effort where we're constantly, we're sending phishing emails out to our own employees so that they'll fall victim to ours mm. and we can figure out who is susceptible to those types of things and train them. But that is very focused on, to your earlier point, IT security, you know, financial security, all those kinds of things, and not, you know, competitive, I guess, security would be maybe a way to say it. And in your opinion, do you think, because we, I mean, every company sees goofy scammers trying to do phishing attempts to their employees. And, you know, you assume it's some idiot in Zimbabwe or wherever, no offense to Zimbabwe, but just idiot in some other country, right? And, uh, and they're trying to get some financial information to steal money. Do you think that some of those phishing attempts are likely competitive things for, for a lot of companies? Or do you, that's, is that not normally the way that that goes? I, I think that the, you, you make a great point, which is that the firms have gotten much, much better at um, identifying phishing, right? Identifying that type of technical hacking or technical penetration, right? But the good old fashioned phone call, the good old fashioned social engineering phone calls having a comeback for that very reason. It's so easy nowadays to get people's cell phone numbers. So if I can get your cell phone number, and of course with COVID, so many people started working remotely. So now I'm calling you on your cell phone, you're at home, I'm using call spoofing to make my cell phone appear as if maybe it's a number you recognize, Maybe it's a corporate number that you recognize. Oh, it's my company calling me. I don't know who it is, but I recognize this number. It's the company number. And so now all of a sudden I've got you at home. You know, you're running around with your kids. You're working, but there's, you know, you're a little distracted. There's nobody sitting next to you to go, wait a second. Why are you giving this information up? Right. And so now, because I'm portraying myself as someone that you might know, or you think, you know, or you recognize the voice or you recognize the name. What secrets are you not going to tell me? What information are you not going to tell me? You're going to tell me anything I want to know. In some cases, even passwords, right? And so now because I've hacked your people, I no longer need to hack the system or because I've hacked your people, now it's going to make hacking the system so so much easier. Gosh, that's crazy because it is. it really is kind of all one, one effort, right? I mean, information security is is competitive security as well, because that's where a lot of your competitive stuff is going to sit is, is inside your systems. So is there a, is there a story in Ruse that you love to tell people that sort of gives them a, a, an idea of what that book is going to be like? <laughs> well, you know, uh, you know, I, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil too much for any uh, potential readers or listeners because the book's on Audible, but you know, at one point, we, me and my buddy, and the book, his name is Pax, the, the guy that got me the job, we were being hunted by every agency in the world. Every agency with three letters, <laughs> they were on our trail. Uh, and I, I'm not going to say anything more than that, because again, I think it's kind of fun to see that chase uh, in, in, in real time, so to speak. 
but um, it was definitely it was definitely frightening, um, you know, at that moment in our lives because we were literally afraid that we were going to be arrested and spend the rest of our lives in jail. Wow. Oh, oh man. Okay. So this is so this is quite a story. Um, and and Roos is available everywhere, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Once you uh, once you guys get the book and read it, how can they find you? If they wanted to connect with you or they wanted to follow you online, where can they find you online? Well, um, they can go to my website. Uh, it's just my name, Robert Kerbeck, K-E-R-B-E-C-K.com. And I tell people, if you read the book and you're looking to pivot into a new career as a corporate spy, you can email me right from my website and I will give you some tips because I'm out of the game, but I can guide you in the right direction if you're interested in a lucrative new career. If there was ever a tapped phone line, it's probably <laughs> that one right there. Like his people, <laughs> he's been hunted by every agency with three letters uh, and he's recruiting people to get into the game. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you to do anything illegal, but like I said, um, the demand for corporate spies is uh, intense. Um, I still have people that are in the, in the business spying, uh, and they tell me that they have more work than they can handle. Uh, one of the most shocking things about writing my book is so I write this book, I out myself as a corporate spy, I put a target on my back. I cannot tell you how many emails I've received from major corporations begging me to spy for them. And I email them back and I say, you do know that because I wrote the book, I can't spy anymore. It's, you know, right, they don't yeah. care. <laughs> they don't care. They just want the information. So there is a lot of demand for corporate spies. That's, uh, I'm just so blown away at this. Like, I, it's like one of those things like you know this is going on. Um, but to, when somebody sort of s s paints the picture for you and, and spells it out, it's really crazy. And it's not all, I mean, I'm not all of this is, I mean, corporate corporate espionage could be as simple as like if I owned a hamburger stand, there's nothing stopping me from going down the street and ordering at another local hamburger stand and figuring out, you know, what's the menu look like and whatever. And that's sort of one level. But what you're talking about is getting out, getting into the information that's not public. Right. And that is something I think a lot of people assume happens. Um I don't even think I was fully aware of how common that was until meeting you because that's you, you just like you know what's going on. Um, but when you've got that much money, when, when there's that much money involved and, you know, uh, uh, one sort of nugget of somebody's sales plan could be the difference in you winning 20% more deals. Well, for some firms, 20% more is hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And so um, mm -hmm. it's, it would be worth the, the risk to those people or to some people. Yeah. And, and, you know, you think about it, if, if, if it's the CEO of a company or whatever C-level executive or general manager of a major division, you know, these are individuals that are making, you know, forget about millions of dollars a year, you know, tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions. And if they're feeling like they're going to lose their job and they're going to lose their $47 million payday, what are they willing to do to try to get information, to try to win a big deal, to try to save their $47 million a year job, right? They're willing to do anything. And, and that's what we see in this corporate kind of environment. It is incredibly cutthroat and people kind of know that, but they just don't realize how deep it goes. That's amazing, man. 
Well, Robert, let's get one last check here at uh, at our grill. I just about knocked my table over. I don't know if you saw that from California, but I did. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to get this to a nice, you know, medium rare. I don't want to overcook this bad boy. So, you know, my cheat sheet here says 145. Oh, I still got a little ways to go. I think I was being a little too cautious here with the meat. I'm at 122. So we're going to finish these things up and serve up some lunch to our friends here. Robert, thank you so much for being on the show. Guys, check out Robert's book, Ruse, available wherever books are, uh, and follow him on his website. And uh, I guess be watching. We can say we, we we heard it here first, right? We knew this, this show was coming, and when we see your whatever happens with this effort and it becomes a big hit, we'll say we um, – I can claim I had some super famous guy on the show, but I just don't have to tell anybody he was 10 times more famous by the time they heard about him, right? <laughs> well, hey, what a pleasure. I love this this show. I love the whole cooking thing. It's so fun. And uh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Robert. And we will see you guys next time. If you found something valuable on this show, please share it with a friend. Tell somebody about it. And make sure you like and follow us everywhere we're at on social media. We're 20-something thousand strong on TikTok now. Uh, We've got a YouTube channel where we're doing shorts and we're on Instagram. Follow us wherever you're on social media, and we'll see you next time on the Slow Smoke Business Show.